Well, Greg Ruber, he was a waiter in Houston, and uh, the bill was $50. And when he go, went to go receive the bill, he found that underneath um, the $50 for the payment was uh, $5,100 bills in a note that said, buy yourself a new car. The people that had, uh, he had been serving had overheard that he was riding the bus because he had lost um, his car in a flood. And uh, these people left this very, very large tip for him to buy a new car. Well, maybe you have heard these kind of feel-good stories when it comes to waiters and waitresses receiving these very, very large tips. But one thing you might not hear a lot about is the battle in restaurants between the front of the house, the waiters and the waitresses, and the back of the house, the cooks. And this has been a battle that's been going on for decades. Whether you're in San Francisco or New York or Chicago, you probably see articles in the paper that talk about these battles. It's because by law in most states, cooks can't receive any of the tips that is given to the front of the house. So while a waitstaff could earn $60 an hour, a cook would just receive $15 an hour. Well, of course, the waiters and waitresses would argue, well, we don't make uh, an hourly wage that the cooks make, right? We Sometimes it's only $2.17 is what you can pay waiters and waitresses um, knowing that they get tips. So this is a battle that continues in restaurants throughout the nation between waiters and waitresses and cooks. So what is fair? That's really the question. What is a fair payment? See, behind even these generous stories of people receiving large tips, there is always something that says, what about me? What do I deserve? Especially at work, right? We want to make sure at work that it's fair. We have a clear idea how this economy should work. I work like this, I should receive this. And we look and around and see what other people are receiving, what they're driving out of the lot at work, whatever it might be, and we always wonder, am I getting my fair share? Well, that's the world economy, right? What about the economy of the kingdom? God's economy. What happens when his economy comes down to earth? Finally, it's going to be fair, right? Between the wait staff and the cooks. Finally, it's going to be fair of how much I work and what I deserve. So let's find out, shall we, this morning? What is God's economy like? Let's look. Verses 1 through 7 first. We're going to make it fun, right? Let's not reveal what the story is until later. Maybe you heard the story before, but we'll read a little bit, and then we'll read a little bit later and a little bit later, so we kind of get shocked as they get shocked. Does that sound good? So let's start. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. We'll begin. Let's pray in your worship For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house 
who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Matthew this winter and this spring, and we've predominantly been on the Sermon on the Mount, but in these last months, we're going to go through some other sections in the book of Matthew. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really laid out for us what his workspace looks like, right? What does it look like to be part of his economy? We didn't call it workspace and economy. He used the language, the kingdom. What is it like to be under his reign, his being boss, his setup of the world? He talked about this in the Sermon about love for enemy, forgiveness, fidelity, truth. And if you're one of the disciples around it, you are writing it down. You are taking notes. You are thinking, what behavior do I need to have to be part of this work environment? And if you're thinking as a follower of Jesus, writing these things down of what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act, now you're wondering, okay, if this is his economy, if this is how it works, so what is then the payout, right? If I live this way, if I live the way he calls us to live in his work environment, what am I going to get? This is the exact thing that Peter asked just before this parable. He asks Jesus, he says, what will we have, right? Oh, good. I'm glad Peter just gets to the bottom line, right? What's the economic basis of this kingdom? What is our payout if we're following you in this way? It's really the idea of how economy works. I put in X, I get Y. You know, this is true for a lot of environments that we're in, right? If you are starting to go to school for the first time, maybe your class starts in the fall and you have this new teacher, you're trying to understand the ground rules of how this teacher operates the class, what they appreciate. They appreciate class participation. Okay, then I'm not really good at that, but I'm going to do it anyway to get the good grade. They appreciate good punctuation and grammar. I'm not great at that, but I will try hard. I will follow their rules to be able to get something out of it. Same for work too, isn't it? How does my work culture pay out? What do I need to do to be able to receive back? I've got to get the lay of the land. How does this economy work? And this is what Peter and the disciples are figuring out too. How does your economy work, Jesus? 
I'm so glad that we don't do this in the church, right? We don't think like that, right? We don't kind of look left and right and figure out what the culture of a church is and say, okay, what rules and behaviors do I have to follow among these people to be, you know, esteemed in this place? Maybe it's, I got to be kind, have big smiles. Then they'll ask me to do the snacks on Sunday morning, right? Maybe if I keep doing it, maybe they'll ask me to lead a group. I mean, it's just the chain of command. How goes it? Maybe I'll, I could become a deacon or an elder. If I just follow these things, I will get a payout in this economy of Christianity in the church. Is this how it works? Is this how God's economy works? Figuring out the lay of the land, working hard, getting the payout? Well, that's what Jesus wants to answer. And he, you can see he's trying to answer it by one word, right? The word in verse 1, for. So he's answering Peter's question, for. The kingdom of heaven, all these things I've talked about, is like. And this is his parables, right? He goes into a parable. Again, parable means to throw alongside. He's going to give them something familiar. Something that they have observed themselves to understand. How does God's economic kingdom work? So, let's find out, shall we, how it works. Now, if you're one of the disciples, especially if you're a worker, like many of the followers of Jesus, these fishermen and kind of the, the lower class of society, you knew this kind of picture, that in the marketplace in town, people would hang out. Day laborers. These are people that, especially at harvest time, knew that there was extra work, maybe to earn an extra income if they didn't have enough money, or maybe the only work that they could have, that these owners of vineyards would come to the marketplace, the central place, and find workers to hire daily. You think, oh, if you get there early, right? You're the able-bodied, the, the, the pick of the litter, basically. Guess what? There's a good contract that comes your way. A denarius, which is a, a day's wage. And you got to realize there was really no major social safety net in that society at that time. This might have been the only way for people to provide for their family. And they might be wondering, am I, when they come that morning, am I going to get selected? Am I going to be chosen to be able to provide for my family to get a job like this on this day? And this is how the story works. He works on the idea of the hours, right? So the hours at that time were 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., hour 1 being 6 a.m., hour 12 being 6 p.m. So he's talking about this owner coming at different hours. And this is what makes parables interesting, that it always adds something a little different, a little twist. And the twist here is the owner keeps on coming back for more people. You know, this is interesting. At first, oh, maybe he realizes with the first group of people at 6 a.m. that he needs more, so he comes back at 9 a.m., right, to see if he needs more people. That, that, that could be understand. But for him to come back at 12 a.m., that's a little weird. 12 p.m., sorry. To come back at 3 p.m. And then to come back at 5 p.m.? 
I mean, that's only one hour of work left that he would come back at 5 p.m. is crazy. You see the word, it's the word idol, it's in Greek, it's argos. It could very mean have a negative connotation, but literally it means they are without work. Here he comes back at 5 p.m. and he sees these people are without work. But here the master does not look overlook anyone. He welcomes them and cares for them and brings them in to be able to be part of this community, to be a part of this workforce. Now, if you're an Israelite, you realize that when Jesus is using this parable and talking about vineyard, it is loaded language because the vineyard means Israel or the covenant community. So here Jesus is describing what it means to be a part of Israel, the vineyard to be accepted to work in this place, to be a part of this community. And the disciples might have had an understanding of this. See, Jesus is welcoming people outside of the normal fold. The 12 p.m. people, the 3 p.m. people, the 5 p.m. people, the Galileans, right? The northern part of Israel, which was many times left out of kind of the Jerusalem southern religion, that Jesus went to them, that he went to the Samaritans, that he went to the Gentiles. Even late in time of history, this linear thing of history Jesus comes to welcome even these people into his fold. Now, if you're one of the disciples and, you know, you're kind of on the outside and you feel like you might be like the 9 a.m. worker or the 12 p.m. worker, this is strange that a master would do something like this, but it's cool that I get to be a part of this too. Many times I felt like I might have been on the outside, but now I'm a part of it. And the truth is, when we hear the first seven verses of this passage, as Americans, we dig it. We love this idea of accepting the outsider, right? That Hollywood has made this an industry, this kind of story, right? You know, when I was young, the movie to see was about Jaime Escalante. Maybe you had to see that too in the movie Stand and Deliver, right? It's now, I think it's in the archive in the Smithsonian now as a great part of American um, cinema history. And basically it tells the story about this real life teacher in the inner city of LA that went to the 5 p.m. kind of kids, right? And he taught them calculus. Not just any calculus, but to pass the AP calculus exam. That people thought there's no way these type of kids could pass this exam. But then... They pass it and, you know, writes a book and a story and a movie and everyone loves it, right? We love this message that we would accept people on the outside and bring them into the fold. It's really the beauty of the gospel. That God does not out overlook groups of people. He comes to Gentiles. That's us, Right? He comes to us at the 11th hour, at the end of the age, and he calls us to be part of his covenant community. 
What's sad is many times as the church, we act like the 6 a.m. community. I can't tell you when I went to other people in this community in Appleton and told them we were going to plant a church six years ago in this area, people said, we don't need another church. Why another church in Appleton? And in the most gracious way I could say it, I'm just wondering, is everyone in this city, are they saved? Are they? Has everyone come into the faith community. And that's really why a lot of times in our denomination, we do a lot of church planting because we believe that there is a need in our nation for more and more churches because in church plants, we find that a lot of people on the outside and the fringe come to faith through church plants. But this is what happens sometimes with church planting. The church planter gets busy and he's worried about if it's going to work or not. And then you do all this work and then you've come to the place of arrival, right? We've arrived. We've got our own elders. We're self-sustaining as a church um, when it comes to our money. You know, we just need a building and then we'll be there, right? We've totally arrived once it's there. And a lot of churches that get to that place stop seeing people come to faith. They become complacent. Here's what the master does. He keeps going out. 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m. And he keeps calling people into this. Why are you idle? Why are you not working? Come. Be a part of what I'm doing. I'll admit, I've got a, we got a job, right? We got this Girl Scout building. We've, we've good. I like this. This is steady. The idea of going out again to a new place is, is painful and hard. But I wonder if our move to Jefferson Elementary in the center of Appleton, in a neighborhood, might be the 5 p.m. work call. It might be those that come, that are parents of those kids in that school, or people we spend time with the kids in that school, people that are very on the outsides of Christianity, that we would say, come, come see. You're not on the outside. Well, this is cool, right? The first seven verses. Sure, it's a little bit weird that he keeps going out. But the idea of helping other people, that is wonderful. This is what makes the parables interesting. Like I mentioned last, last week, um, Jesus in parables, he brings a twist to the parable that shocks us. Last week it was that he said, don't weed, right? That's shocking for a farmer to hear, don't weed. In other parables where, again, the, the prodigal son who has spent his father's inheritance and the father, the shocking thing is that he runs towards this prodigal son and hugs him and celebrates his return. That's shocking. 
what is going to be shocking here? We're going to see, right? We're, we're finding out the story. Okay, ready? Together? Verses 8 through 12. Let's find out, shall we? And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And in receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Dude, something is up here. Okay? First of all, it's the end of the day, you know, 6 p.m. And he's asking the people that only worked an hour to come and get paid first. And that's that, come on. I've been here longer. You should pay me first, right? Let those people, they can stay a little bit longer. They're only here an hour. And then even crazier, he pays these people that have only been an hour a full day's wage. That's 12 times more than they deserve. And I am assuming, let's assume you're one of those people that have been there since 6 a.m. all day long, and you're seeing that these people have been paid 12 times more, and you are starting to do the math in your head, right? Okay, I've been here from 6 a.m., so it's 12 hours. They were there one hour. They got paid one denarius. That means I should probably get paid 12, right? And you know how it is. You can just see on the ping on. By the time you've gotten to get paid, you've already spent the 12 denarius, right? Like, okay, I'm going to purchase this for my kids, or I'm going to pay this bill off, or guess what? I can save for this. You've already spent it by the time you get to get paid. And then the shock. You just get a denarius too. I mean, you can imagine it's gotten so bad that the grumbling starts happening. It's being not just in the head, in the heart. It's actually being, you know, vomited out of your mouth. This is not fair. I've worked in the sun all day long. What kind of business are you running here? I get the same as the slackers? Come on. And really, this is answering Peter's question, is it not? What will we have? Right? The disciples, they've been there since 6 a.m., following Jesus for all these years. What will we have? I mean, this is the American way. You get paid for how you work. You work hard, you get the reward. And this parable, it starts to bubble something inside of not just those people, probably bubble something inside of us. You are aggrieved as a worker. This is not fair. That's what you're saying or screaming. This is not how the economy works. Rewards are commensurate with services rendered. That's how the economy works, Jesus. The most passionate times in my house 
are when ice cream gets handed out. And this is the way the ice cream economy works in our household. You're older, you get a bigger portion. And so when the ice cream is handed out, there is a surveying of, did I get the proper portion? And then they see, oh, wait, Clary, our youngest, how is she getting more ice cream than all of us? It's like the rules of the natural world have been suspended when they see that Clary has gotten more ice cream. This is what I find the most interesting of this whole experiment. The most emotion and passion in my house is for the little bit less that you get rather than an emotion and passion of joy for getting any ice cream at all. We think God's economy works like this. I do X for God and I get Y in return. Versus what I have been given is not because of my own work. It's because he chose me. How happy do you think those 5 p.m. workers were? Could you imagine their faces when they get home and talk to their wife or their kids? Honey, I thought I was going to come home with nothing today. In fact, I stayed because the pain of staying late in the day was far greater than the pain of coming home with nothing. But you'll never guess what? I got a whole day's wage for an hour's work. For my whole adult life, I've been a mess. I've made poor choices. I've done horrible things. But God came and he saved me. He called me out even of how far I had wandered. He called me out of sin and he saved me. Can you believe that? That he would save me. Whether you got picked up at 5 p.m. or got saved at 50 or whether you got picked up at 6 a.m. and became a Christian at six years old, God, by his grace, saved you. Rejoice because you did not deserve anything. See, this is the false gospel. The false gospel looks at the denarius and says, this? This for my hard work? Really, God? When the true gospel says, I deserve nothing 
but you called me. Really? A whole denarius for me? Maybe some of you have been coming here and just wondering, what is this whole Christianity thing? What is the gospel? See, the gospel is different than religion. Religion says this, I serve, I work, so I receive a reward. The gospel says, I receive the greatest reward. So I serve, so I work. You see what Jesus is doing in this parable. Through this shock, he's trying to get the disciples' attention. What is my economy like? What is my kingdom like? Last part. Let's get verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give you this to the, uh, to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. Here the master starts to clarify to the ones grumbling. And he does it in a very generous way. He says, friend. What is this all about? Am I not the owner? Am I not allowed to give the way that I want to give? You see, fairness in God's economy, transcends human fairness. No one receives less than they deserve in God's economy. But some receive more. And if you're grumbling, friend, this is what I receive, this is what I get, do you really want the God of the universe to appeal to his justice and fairness with you? Would you like him to appeal to that first before he appeals to his mercy and his grace? I'm here to tell you, if God appeals to his justice first, we are in big trouble. Some great questions after last week's sermon about the weeds. How is this fair that God would call some weeds? How could he do this? That some people would not be in his kingdom. That's not fair. Do you want to hear something that's truly unfair? That the perfect person, the person that lived perfect in this life, took our punishment, which he did not deserve. That's truly not fair. So the first thing we should be looking at is not, did my sister get more ice cream? 
the first thing we should be looking at is, man, you gave me ice cream. See, most of the time, this kind of teaching or parable had been taught to people outside of the covenant community, to the Pharisees who had objected to Jesus opening his grace in the kingdom to the undeserving, to the sinner, to the tax collector, other people. The Pharisee says that is just not fair. But here in this parable, Jesus is not talking to those Pharisees. He's talking to the insiders, to people inside the community that are struggling with God's economy, that are saying we deserve something more. See, this can happen, can't it, in the church and in Christian circles? How does the church economy work? I'm going to go to church to get the good life. I have morals. I get to be around nice people. I follow these rules. I do X, I do Y. I get rewards. I get happiness. Now hear me. I think all those things are good. Morals and nice people and following the rules. Those are good things. And many times they do lead to happiness. But that is not the centrality of the gospel. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, so I was never really around a fully Christian community and culture. Not until I was in middle school and high school when I went down south to Branson, Missouri to a place called Canuck, a Christian sports camp, was I surrounded by this Christian culture. And I learned to play the game. You know, I, how, how do I do well in this economy? Right? If I'm here for a month every year, I better learn how to play the game. Say sir, say ma'am. That's the southern way, right? I learned how to do that well. I learned that you got to treat women really, really right. Right, it's kind of that southern kind of treat your women right kind of thing. I learned. I know. I just. I need to. I need to serve a lot. I'm just, I'm just learning all of these things, right? And then I realize, oh, if I do this, I start to get rewarded, right? I get get acknowledged. And you realize. I wasn't doing this because of the beauty of the gospel and what God had done. I was doing it for myself. We have run into danger in the church in America of making church this way, especially in youth groups, right? Come to youth group. It's fun. It's the good life. We'll show you how much fun you can have, right? Being a Christian, it results in happiness, in good times. And then I go to a secular college or kids graduate from youth group and they are shocked that guess what? Living this way does not all res result in things that you want. 
or happiness. You know what? That is what makes the gospel so good. Hear me. Society loves to give to those in need. But if giving to those in need means that they will receive equal to what I receive or even more than what I get, that's crazy. If actually sacrificing for others means that I have to give up of myself, that is not fair. This is where Christianity can enter the vacuum of our world so well. Christianity says this, I have received the greatest reward. Therefore, I will give of myself sacrificially. I will give of my time and my money, even if it means other people receive more. Because you know what? I realize the greatest reward is that my Savior died on the cross to save me. Doesn't that make sense then? The last verse? So the last will be first, and the first last. I, I hope this parable makes you go, this is not fair. Because if you're not actually saying that, then it's real, you're not really being honest with yourself. Because I know how some of us are. I know how I am. Looking around at other people, looking at what other people have, and saying things like, God, I have spent so much energy and time and work, and this is what kind of house I get? This is what kind of things I drive? These are the kind of vacations I get to experience? Look at what they get. Look at what they have. Hear me. I receive very well from the church. All things. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying the, the sin in my heart. Do you ever say the same things? Do you ever say to God, what have you given me? What, what have you given me? You give everyone everything else. What have you given me? This is what he's given you. That you can come forward and receive his very life that he died for you. That you would receive the greatest reward. Unity with him. And he says, take. Take of me generously. Take all of me in. Here is my gift. A free gift to you. So, that said, I hope you will partake. 
I hope you receive this more than a denarius, more than any other reward this world can give. So we have white grape juice on the outside, red wine in the middle. This side comes over here. This side will come over here to the station. You'll take the elements and you'll return back to your seats. If your kids are not taking communion yet, we'd love to be able just to be able to pray for them. Also, if you need prayer, just tell us. We'd love to be able to pray for you too as you come up. If you are not there, these things raise some questions in you. If you say, this God is not fair, this is not just, I'd love to sit down and talk about that with you. I encourage you, my contact information is here along with our elders and David. Any of us would love to just sit down. There's also women leaders here too. Just to sit down and talk with you about what the gospel is. We'd love to be a place where people can process um, what it means uh, to, to be a Christian. So, that said, 